We are in part 33 of a series called The Empowered Church, walking through the book of Acts line by line. And I'm a little bit bittersweet on the fact that we're kind of wrapping it up, right? I mean, we're coming to the end of the year. And it's like, man, I love this series. I love talking about the power of God. I love watching this stuff. But at the same time, I know what we got next year and it's awesome. So it's kind of bittersweet, right? You kind of go, well, we do need to move on, but I love this series. We've been doing this year of power, right? 2023, the year of power and focusing on there's more, there's more, there's more. That's one of my favorite things is refocusing each and every week to say God has more for us. We're not even scratching the surface. There is so much greater depth in what God wants us to do and to be. And I feel like the book of Acts has allowed us to see what it would look like if regular people lived into that power reality. And so I'm, I'm, I'm being uh, kind of inspired by watching their lives. Unfortunately, I believe that we are not yet anywhere near utilizing the power available. A couple hallmarks that you would know whether or not you are utilizing the power of God is when you see a lot of inability or exhaustion. Inability or exhaustion. If stuff is just not happening, you may need God's power to do it. If you're tired and wiped out, you're probably operating in your own strength way too much, right? And I think that may be an indicator for some of us. Man, if you're super burned out, maybe we need to start talking about letting God be God and stop sitting in his seat. You know what I'm talking about? Give you a couple examples. You know, we all want to share our faith. I think we should share our faith. When we share our faith, it's called evangelism. But unfortunately, we have a few things backwards. We focus more on strategy than prayer. We focus more on trying to have the right words, say the right things, convince people of the right things, as opposed to recognizing it is primarily a supernatural event, which means we would do well to pray for those that we care about, that God would open doors and open hearts, and we would actually do a supernatural work before we get to the strategies and the practicalities. Because I feel like many times we're beating our head against a closed door because we never prayed for it to open. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Here's another one, our prayer lives. I think many of us have beautiful prayer lives. I think we probably pray very humble and very kindly. But I wonder whether or not many of us are utilizing the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. You know what I mean? Like breakthrough, like making things happen in his name. You're not commanding him. He's the boss. You're commanding in his name to get things done. It's possible there are strongholds that are not yet broken because our prayers are filled with hope rather than power. You know what I'm saying? Like we do this whole thing, well, I hope it works out. Well, you know, Lord, uh, so-and-so is really struggling in the hospital. I hope, I hope you, you, you can do something about that. Okay, well, hold on a second. It may be that the Lord pushes back a little bit and says, hey, kiddo, why did I equip you with so much authority and power if you're gonna keep saying, I hope something happens? How about you get in there and let's get it done? You know what I mean? So I wonder whether or not our prayers need to shift a little bit from nice to powerful. You know, I, I think that might be an element. Another one is righteous living. I think that many of us grit it out. We try to be good people. Now, here's what's interesting. The Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is good living, and it's the natural outpour of having the Holy Spirit. So instead of spending more energy 
gritting out trying to do good, should we not lean into the intimacy of the Holy Spirit to where we want good? You understand what I'm talking about? Give me, I'm going to give you an example. It's one that's always stuck with me. It's a very overused analogy, at least in this church. And it's simply this. Let's talk about smoking for a moment. Now, once again, we all have varying opinions about smoking, and uh, I don't consider it a moral issue. Uh, I consider it a health issue. But some of you do. I get that. But let's say you, you wanted to stop smoking. Now, I've been told by uh, a lot of addiction specialists that smoking is one of the most difficult to overcome. And one of the reasons for that is it's not so much the nicotine, it's the hand-to-mouth comfort. You know what I'm talking about? It's the idea that something would bring a soothing and you create a pattern in your brain, a map that says, I need to draw something to my mouth. Now, let's say, for example, you were like, man, I'm trying to quit, trying to quit, trying to quit, trying to quit. Okay, let's say you grit it out. How are you going to do? Well, it's tough. But then let's use another analogy. Let's say, for example, you're 40, 45 years old, and you said, you know, I've always had a dream to run a marathon. And you said, you know, at this age of my life, I really want to do it. And you go out there and you start running, you got low lung capacity. And you're like, gosh, dang it. I can't even seem to run a block. What is happening here? Suddenly, your dream is being disrupted by something. And all of a sudden, the smoking is in the way. As You, know, so you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that suddenly something more noble, something more beautiful, something more extraordinary has drawn your attention to where it becomes a negative in your life. And you're like, you know what? I want that more than that. I think that's how it should be in the majority of the transformation of our lives. I think that instead of just gritting it out, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this, it should shift into I dream of this and now it's in the way. I think that if we lean in and start wanting what the Lord wants for us, all of a sudden we start seeing sin issues getting in the way. And then we want to discard them naturally. I think that's the power of God. So we've been talking all year long about power of God, power of God. If you're brand new with us, I'm not just talking about signs, wonders, and miracles, although that's true. I'm talking about the power just to live rightly. I'm talking about the power to be saved. I'm talking about we need the power of God to get anything done. But when we talk about it, you don't keep it to yourself. And this is the heart of the message. We're going to be talking about investing in other people. Whatever God gives us, whatever he pours down into our lives, we are to cascade out into other people. It's not just about us, right? I'm going to be that reminder to you every week. We have to give stuff away, give stuff away. Whatever God pours into you, you give it away. If he pours in anointing, you pray for somebody else. If he pours in resources, you share that. That's what we do. Fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Don't keep the power to yourself. Don't keep the power to yourself. Whatever power God gives you, man, we got to figure out a way to bless somebody else. How do we do that? This message is going to talk about a practical way to do that. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 18, verse 24? Acts 18, 24, page 927. Acts chapter 18, 24, page 927, and the Bible's under the seat in front of you if you need that. I want to just give you one thought. As we've been walking through the book of Acts, we've been kind of traveling along mostly with a gentleman named the Apostle Paul. He is now on his third 
of three recorded missionary journeys. Last time we were together on this series, he actually went on his third. We're in the midst of it now. But here's something fascinating to me. If you look over the total, in just his three recorded mission trips, he covered over 10,000 miles and planted over 14 churches. That's a lot for one dude. I mean, we're not talking about planes. We're not talking about cars. We're talking about walking and getting in a boat. 10,000 miles. Goodness gracious, this guy is all over the place, right? But you look at that and you go, wow, what an impressive resume. 14 known churches that he planted. One of the greatest theologians, one of the greatest church planners of all time, this guy right here. But our story begins with a brand new character. His name is Apollos. Let's go ahead and take a look here. Acts 18, 24. We'll read a little bit, talk about it, read a little bit, talk about it. Here we go. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria of Egypt, came to the now-known Turkish city of Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and talked accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. All right, let's talk about this. Now, a couple of things that we need to know as we begin is that I'm about to share a little bit of history. And so I, I need to tell you a little bit about how my sermons go if you're brand new. My sermons are long. Let's be very clear on that. So I need you to look at it like a marathon. This is not a dash. This is a marathon. I need you to hydrate. I need you to rest up. So when I get into my little history lessons, some of you, there's three of you that are fascinated. The rest of you, this is time to get a little shut eye. You understand what I'm talking about? Okay, and then what happens is I'll randomly yell and you'll wake up refreshed and you'll re-engage with the Lord. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, here we go. I wanna talk about the city of Alexandria because I find this absolutely fascinating. So we're in Egypt, right? Alexandria was the capital of Egypt for 1,000 years. Are you kidding me? There is nothing in American history that is longer than maybe 1600, right? I mean, like we're talking about, oh, we were founded in 1776. They're like, my underwear is not that old, you know. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. Like we're talking about over in, you know, in Nineveh. Nineveh is the longest continuously uh, housed city, 10,000 years old. Are you kidding me? So Alexandria was the capital for a thousand years. Today, it's still the second largest city of Egypt. It's where the Nile empties out. Okay, let me confess something to you. Um, if you're really bad at geography, you're called an American, okay? <laughs> so let me just share something with you real quick here. Imagine a map, all right? And I'm American, so this is gonna be difficult. There's a map right here. Ever since I was a child, I believed that anything lower on a map was called South, and that, and that it went down, okay? I found out as I was doing my studies, Nile runs up, and I was like, oh, it's Australian. <laughs> That's not true. This, we're on a ball, and there is no such thing as up and down, right, if you make any sense of there. So on the map, uh, the Nile River starts from Lake Victoria. It's one of the largest lakes in the entire world, and it is so big, it borders a whole bunch of countries. One of them is Uganda. And the reason why I know that is I was in Uganda. 
And I went to Lake Victoria and we whitewater raft the Nile. Does that not sound sweet? I mean, it sounds power. It was not that cool. But anyway, <laughs> it looks super cool. And I just start stories like that to impress people. Uh, what happens is it starts there, it empties at Alexandria. So when you think about Moses and the Nile in Egypt, that's the end of it, in case you're wondering about just kind of geography stuff. A couple other interesting things. It was a major seaport for both river travel and ocean travel, super wealthy, had one of the seven wonders of the world. It had this massive, beautiful lighthouse, no longer is with us today, it had the world's greatest library. And when I say greatest library, I'm talking about it was such a cultural center of learning that it is reported that at one point it had 700,000 volumes of the world's greatest literature. They had buying teams that went throughout the world to grab first editions, the best and brightest books. They had all Socrates' original works, Plato's original works. They had everything all there. They bought it around the world. Now, unfortunately, due to war and religion, we don't have any of that stuff anymore. A bunch of it got burned. A bunch of it got sold off. It's just kind of all over the place anymore. But Alexandria, which was started, by the way, who founded that city? Any guesses? Alexander the Great, it's right there in the name. Okay, so uh, the question, you guys, help me help you. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm asking easy questions. You should get these right. Okay, Alexander did Alexandria, and in that city, he wanted it to be the hub of Hellenization or Greek culture to spread throughout the world. So it was one of the most institutionally educated places on the planet. One other fascinating thing about it, it had, in Paul's day, one million Jews. It was one of the largest Jewish populations on the globe. Why, we're not gonna get into, but this is where Apollos came from. Jewish dude, he has a Greek name, and he's super educated. Y'all tracking with me? That's why we have him so brilliant. He's a long way from home, 760 nautical miles because he would have had to take a ship. What's he doing so far from home? Here's my guess. He looked at how he was built by God, saw his gifts, saw his talents, and said, I need to use it for the Lord, and I'm going to get out of my comfort zone. I think that's it. Do we do that? I'm going to talk a lot about my story today, but my story is not your story. Your story is just as valuable. You are a conglomeration of things that God has put together in you, and your story is beautiful. Your story is unique, and you've got to follow that. Not last week, but the week before, I was speaking at the WCCW. It was the West Coast Christian Writers Conference. It was right here in this room. 230 writers, authors, agents, publishers, another 80 online. It's a big deal. And I'm looking out at the audience as I'm speaking, and I didn't see like all this self-confidence, I'm going to be the next J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, I didn't see that. I saw a bunch of like nervousness, insecurity. But what I saw was a room full of people that said, these are my gifts, Lord. Here I am. Send me. And I went, they can change the world because they're using what God gave them and wanting to write as a Christian. And I thought, how beautiful is that? 
Who knows if they're the next bestseller? Who knows if they change society? Who knows if they're going to alter how the United States sees things? Literature can do that. They're just giving God what they have. Are you giving God what you have? That's the core. All right, so this eloquent, educated man is competent in the scriptures. He was not only raised a Jew, but he was educated, so he knows the Old Testament backward and forward. It says he was fervent in spirit could also be translated fervent in the spirit. Don't know if he was fired up by personality or by anointing. Either way, fiery dude, it says he spoke accurately about Jesus. As a matter of fact, there was such great respect. Anybody know who Martin Luther is? The reformer, right? Martin Luther wrote, he was so convinced, he wrote down that it was actually Apollos who wrote the book of Hebrews in the Bible because nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. Doesn't seem to be Paul, but we don't know who it was. So he's like, no, no, no. If we're going to talk about an educated man that knows the Old Testament scripture and New Testament truth, that's Apollos. That's how confident he was in this guy. But it says one caveat. However, he only knew the baptism of John. John who? John the Baptist. So would he, what does that mean? It means that he knew mankind had a problem. He knew Jesus was the Messiah. You go, well, that's the whole gospel, right? It is not. There's more. So it says he shows up in Ephesus, another big city. It's in modern-day Turkey. Once again, not a lot of it's excavated. I've been out there, but it's a beautiful location it's this major city. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was the capital of the whole region of Asia at the time. Paul had already been there. Last time we were together, Paul was there. People were loving his ministry, and he's like, oh, shoot, I'm late. I got to go back to Jerusalem in time for Passover. You guys, I'll be back if I get a chance. If the Lord allows me, I'm out. He disappeared. While he's gone, Apollos comes in. And who else is in town? Some of Paul's best friends, business partners, a superpower couple named what? Priscilla and Aquila, okay? These are wealthy, influential, brilliant people, hardcore in the ministry. Priscilla's always mentioned first. She is likely the more influential of the two. They're already in this town, and in comes this young man fired up, right? All right, he is going to be very effectual, why? In my opinion, it is because he is a combo pack of three very impressive things. The Bible lists them out. Number one, he is highly Christian educated. What does that mean? Well, once again, he was raised under education, he was around education, and he gathered that, embraced that culture, and was super smart. So this is a man that I look at and I say, oh, interesting, we have a lot of similarities about how God built our life. So interesting thing about me in education, I have always loved learning. Some people don't like school, I think school is awesome. I'm terrible at homework, but when I'm in class, I am legit, right? <laughs> now, a couple things about why I was interested. I was always front row sitter, front row sitter in class. And people are like, you're a nerd. Okay, hold on, that is true, but hold on. The reason I did that is I was Coke bottle glasses kid. Anybody know Coke? You remember those big old thick glasses? All my, all my Little League pictures? 
I like couldn't see the ball, you know, and it was just that kind of thing, right? It made my eyes look bigger than they really were. Okay, that was me. Eventually, I got contacts. My eyesight was so bad that when I would go to bed, I could not see the red numbers on the alarm clock, right? So it didn't even matter. It was just, and it was just terrible. They're like, you are legally blind. I'm like, yes, I am, right? So it was super, the only reason why I can see you guys is at some point, I got laser vision correction, right? So my eyes, and by side note, not that you care, they bifocaled my eyeballs. I was like, that is sweet. It was not until I was 45 that I learned that because I couldn't see as clear out of one eye. And they're like, oh, they made one that can see far away and one that can see up close. And I was like, dang, that's awesome. I was like, I am a superhero, (laughs) right? I was like, this is super cool. Anyway, let's get back to the story. So I was front row center. It allowed me, because you have to see the board, I had to sit in front and I didn't have very many distractions. So I got a lot of connections with the teachers. And, and since I loved education, I went through and finished high school. I got my AA at Sierra College, got my BA at Sac State. I went and got my master's degree at Western Seminary. And then my doctoral program was at Talbot University. And I've just always been in education. My dad has his doctorate in education. I was around that stuff. It was just constantly the, the air I breathe. But what was interesting is some of my education was actually pressed into me. And that was when I was seven years old, my parents divorced. And my mom, as a single mom, was really worried about stability in our lives. So she pulled me and my sister out of third, well, I was in third grade, out of public education, put us into private school, right? Now, we're not going to talk about how I would Yelp review that school. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not gonna say whether or not I appreciated it at the time. What I'm telling you is it was a private Christian school that I had Bible class every day. I had chapel every week. And I was poured into, poured into, poured into. Well, I'm a guy that retains a lot of what I hear. So I'm drinking this in, whether I like it or not. I'm being quizzed on it, tested on it. And then as I went forward, I kept drinking it in. People go, well, how do you know so much? I'm like, listen, I've never not been poured into by people educationally. That allows me to have quite a vast to draw from, right? So to me, Christian education matters. I'm going to just just say this. We really need to know what we're talking about. And, and I know some of you are like, man, I'm not a school person. I'm not this. I'm not. Okay. What you don't know that every teacher intuitively knows is that you're not reading the Bible for you alone. You're reading for your neighbor. You're reading for your friend that's going to ask you a question. So I get it. You may not feel like it's very interesting to you all the time, but when you study it, you will use it because somebody else will want to know the answer to a question you just read. So let's make sure that we have, we say here at Bridgeway, we are what? Scripture-soaked and spirit-led. You can't be scripture-soaked if you're not reading it. You can't rely only on podcasts and preachers. You got to read it on your own. You got to let that stuff get inside you, right? Here's the second thing I think that he had. He had tremendous communication skills. So I want to talk about something for a moment, and that is... um, I've always been a talker. And, and part of the reason is I was raised completely around women. I've been around women my entire life. Man, little girls talk. 
and they talk. Have you guys all heard about these studies? If you look at how recess, at least used to work, it, it would go like this. You release all the kids out and the boys huddle up to play a game, a kickball, whatever it is, and they, you know, they pick teams. Little girls pair off or go in threes and talk. Every game is an excuse to talk. Let's play ponies. What does it mean? Talk. Now we're playing doggy, same thing, right? And so, you know, you find out that by the time they end up meeting boys and they talk to boys, they're like, wow, you're lame at this, right? Because they've been practicing their entire lives. And the guys are like, I was in left field. I don't, I'd never even talked to anybody. I don't even know what you're saying right now. Understand. Boy, you talk a lot, right? Okay, and then uh, I was raised by a single mom. My sister was my best friend. Every boss I ever had was female. I was in retail, surrounded by females. I had girlfriends, and I'm like, then I get married and have two girls. Like, I can't, like, everything about my dogs are girls. I'm like, gosh. Right? Now, real quick, raise your hand if you ever raised boys. Anybody raise boys? Okay, yeah, I don't understand you. I don't, I don't know what you're doing, but here's what I hear. Here's what I hear from every parent of boys. Ready? Look at me. Look at, look at me. Look, look at me. Look at me. I'm, look, I'm talking, look at me. Look at, so the boys are always like, I'm going somewhere. Stop talking to me. Right? They're just like, I have to go do something. <laughs> right? So, I don't understand you. I, I have been only surrounded. And then my dad is all in education and he's a speaker. So I'm surrounded, even the dudes in my life are talkers. And so of course I'm a communicator. It's why this is my safe place. You understand what I mean? Because it just feels right to me. Does communication skills matter in Christianity? It actually does, because we're in the God and people business. When we have no ability to read a room, we'll tend to say offensive things. When we don't understand body language, we don't realize they're trying to tell us to stop talking. So the more we can get good at communication skills, the more we can articulate our faith. Now you go, well, I'm really shy, I don't speak very well. Hold on, I will suggest that living your faith out is actually more powerful than talking but sometimes we do need to talk. And when we talk, we need to learn how to communicate to another human being. So you'll notice in church dynamics, those that can communicate better tend to do a little better as they're moving around. This guy could communicate. Last thing it says is this guy was a fireball. Now, whether or not that was an anointing or whether or not that was personality, I don't know. But what's interesting is in my own story, you see, I always had the knowledge, I always had the heart for Jesus, I always had a love for people, but as you know my story, I had to deal with a lot of fear. I was afraid a lot. You know, that's what panic disorder does to you. And so as a kid, I, I would hesitate back. I wanted to talk, but I was just a little bit, my body wouldn't always back me up, if that makes any sense. And it was not until I was 13 years old. 13 years old, my sister started dating this guy and they started a punk band and they practiced in my mom's garage. She ended up marrying this guy. And I remember they were old. Um, they were like 18, 19, 20, and 21. You know what I'm saying? Where I was looking up to them and I was like, oh my goodness, you're adults. And I thought they were the coolest guys in the world. 
And I watched them boldly proclaim the gospel in the most hostile environments. And I embraced that. We learn best by role modeling. And I saw their fire, I saw their boldness, and I got captivated. And it became my reality. I got involved in music. I went out into hostile environments and bars and clubs and preached the gospel. I became that very person, becoming bold with my faith, out loud about my faith, willing to do things nobody else would do because I saw it role modeled in front of me. You see, this guy had a fire. And when you put those things together, it's an interesting mix. Once again, that may not be your mix. It doesn't need to be your mix. We don't need another Apollos. We don't need another Lance. We need you exactly how you are. Could be that you're the one that's gifted administratively. You're the one that's gifted creatively. You're the one that's gifted in so many other areas. We need your mix to be put together. Here I am, Lord, send me, and it can change the world. So how did this guy do, right? Here we go, verse 26. So Apollos began to speak boldly in the Jewish synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross over to Corinth on the Greek side, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Messiah was indeed Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, let's pause for a moment. He comes in and he's lit on fire. He is just boldly proclaiming. Does he know all the stuff? Nope, not really, but that didn't stop him. <laughs> Sometimes some of us are just talkers, right? And you're like, that's not really accurate. And we're like, whatever, and we just keep talking. Okay, so there was a power couple sitting in the audience. And they're listening to this guy and they're looking at each other like, isn't he cute? Look at that little guy, all full of energy, right? And they're like, you do realize that's a little bit heretical, right? <laughs> and then the other one's like, yep, I hear it. So afterwards, they're like, hey, hey, pastor, you want to go to lunch? Right? And so he's like, yeah, I love free food. Let's do this, right? They take him aside privately, and they're like, hey, dude, just getting to, trying to read on where you're at. Like, we were listening to you. Man, you are gifted, bro. But there's a couple things that you were saying that we were like, ah. I'm not quite sure that, uh, where were you going with that, right? How cool they didn't embarrass him in front of anybody else. That could have crushed his spirit. I need you to hear this phrase, whether you write it down or not. I want you to listen to this and take it to heart. If someone wants to inflate their own reputation, they publicly correct. If they are interested in blessing the speaker, they privately correct. You guys, I've been in a million situations, small group, classroom settings, where there's some loudmouth that is constantly challenging the instructor and the teacher. They are trying to go out of their way to explain how smart they are. Every time I see that, I immediately say, I cannot use you in ministry. Why? Your heart's wrong. It's not that you're not intelligent. You're going too far to try to show that you're intelligent. And that's not right. It's demeaning to the leader. It's demeaning to the speaker, and I just realized something is off about that, right? I don't like it. If we truly wanted to bless someone, if we truly want to invest in them, if we truly want their best and don't see them as a threat, as competition, 
you'll do so gently in private. Why? Because it's not about showing that you are the one that corrected them. It's more about them being the best version of themselves. Does that make sense? Notice all these people. Apollos goes out of his way to invest in other people with his gifts. He gets in there and Priscilla and Aquila want the best for him, so they take him aside, mentor him, encourage him, and build him up, right? And then it says he needed to go on to his next travel, and the church came around him and wrote him letters of recommendation. They didn't need to do that. They could have just let him do what he does. They put their reputation on the line for him. Because if he said inaccurate things before, you think he's not going to do that again? But they put their good reputation on the line, wrote him a letter. Because this is the ancient world. They weren't like, oh, I saw your stuff on YouTube. You're pretty good. This is like, I come in, I don't, nobody even knows me, right? But they had handwritten letters of recommendation. Now, I'm going to tell you something that I believe is a Christian mandate, but I'm going to use a word that is, that is very loaded these days. I need you to be mature, and I want to redefine this word, okay? So I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you the word, and I need you to hear it for what it is. The word is privilege. You ready? We're going to talk about privilege for a second. I believe it is the Christian mandate that we use whatever privilege we have from God to lift up and raise up other people. That's our job. I don't care if your privilege is that you're beautiful. I don't care if your privilege is that you're influential. I don't care if your privilege is that you're super smart. I don't care what your privilege is. Whatever privilege, and everybody has privilege in different areas, whatever privilege you have, we use it to lift up those who do not. That's our job. Give you an example that maybe you would never even think about. This last week, I was with my oldest daughter on a trip, and we were up in the Pacific Northwest. So I was there with Jill, and we were walking downtown Seattle at about 10 o'clock at night. Got a little sketchy, right? There was, there was people uh, kind of hanging out and some settling in for the night. And, and so my daughter slips her arm through mine, locks in, and we just start walking. That was my privilege. Do you understand this? I don't clutch my keys when I walk into a parking lot. Why? I'm 6'3", 220. I walk wherever I want to walk. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I'm a middle-aged man that also gives me a privilege. But most women I know, they have to know where their car is, beeline for it, and they got to hold their keys. You never even think, gentlemen, that that is a privilege you have. You don't realize that you have a freedom that someone's going to look at you and say, well, I probably it's not worth my time. Whereas women don't have that ability. What was my job? Take my privilege, big guy, cover my daughter, and lock in, and we walk. I'm that security. That's my privilege. So I'm telling you, you don't always know your privilege. You don't know if it's your winsome personality and you're a connector and everybody loves you and so you can help other people make friends. You don't understand your privilege, but whatever it is, use it to bless other people. It's not just about you, yeah? Here's the thing. It says, uh, I, I, I love this. It says, what the result was, he greatly helped the believers. He went to Corinth and crushed it. So much so that in the book of Corinthians, 
Paul had to rebuke them because they kept holding him in such high esteem, they created a whole Apollos group. Remember? Who is Apollos? Who is Paul? I follow Apollos. I follow Paul. I follow. He's like, stop it. We don't idolize people. We don't idolize leaders. There is one that deserves the glory. His name is Jesus Christ. So stop with all this. But he was so influential. He was so beautiful in how he communicated. People were just enraptured by this guy. So they began to put him on a pedestal. But the only reason he didn't have a broken heart and go home when that couple needed to correct him is they did it right and the whole church came around him. And they made him better than he was. So awesome. And then it says this, chapter 19, verse 1. So it happens that while Apollos is crushing it in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, where Apollos had just left. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, hey guys, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you got saved? They were like, no, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. He said, well, then into what were you baptized? They said, well, into John's baptism. Paul said, hmm, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus, right? They're like, yeah, is that wrong? He's like, no, 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 it's good, there's just more. And he explained it. Look at verse five, on hearing this, They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. All right, kind of a weird shift, right? Apollos, Apollos, shift over to Paul. Boom, something weird happens. All right, Paul is now in a ministry he's going to lock into between two to three years. It's in a major city of Ephesus. Ephesus also had a seven wonder of the world location. The temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana, this incredible glittering every column and pillar had been donated by a different king around the world. I mean, it's just that kind of thing. It was kind of over the top. This becomes one of the most significant outreach areas for Christianity. It is during this period that it is likely that every church of the seven churches of Revelation was founded during this time. It was during this time that Epaphras went out on his own, went into the Lycus Valley, and started setting up churches like Laodicea, Colossians. Those are all him. So everything that we're reading, oh, the lukewarm church, right? All those churches, everything got set up during this period right here. This is an incredible period. But what's intriguing is Paul walks in, finds these 12 guys. He's always looking to invest. Hey, guys, you doing good? What's going on with you? Anything I can give you? Anything I can impart to you? How can I help you out? He didn't have to do that. He could have saw him as competition. He didn't. He's like, I just want to get a read on where you guys are at with the Lord. They're like, well, uh, yeah, we're believers. We're Christians. He's like, oh, sweet. So let's talk about that. So I'm just noticing, trying to get a read on, on the pulse here. So you guys get the Holy Spirit when you guys got saved? They're like, what's that? Would you get the Holy Spirit? They're like, yeah, I, I didn't know that was a thing. Now, once again, They're likely Jewish. The Old Testament talks about the Holy Spirit a lot. They know about the Holy Spirit. They didn't know the Holy Spirit had anything to do with people personally. He's like, oh, okay, so you guys got dunked, yeah? They're like, oh, totally. And they're like, okay, so what was that about? Well, we were doing it like John the Baptist told us. What did John the Baptist tell you? Well, he told us we are dead in our sins We're so dead in our sins, somebody has to lower us down into the water like we're dead, dead, right? 
And, and, and he told us that our hearts need to be ready to surrender and fall before the Messiah, right? And so when, when he would lower us down, the Messiah is gonna bring us up and cleanse us, and we know that that's Jesus, right? He's like, yeah, absolutely. They're like, so why are you looking at us weird? And he's like, first of all, that's all totally legit. There's more. Do you guys realize that John the Baptist died before Jesus died on the cross? They're like, hmm. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means he didn't end up telling you the better part of the good news. Like he ended with like a warning and like a hope and Jesus is your salvation. You don't realize, here, here's the rest of the story. Jesus lived a perfect life so he could trade for ours. He, he went to the cross and he died for the sins of mankind. And when we fall down before him, this is the good news, that when we fall down before him, he does such a beautiful cleansing job. It says that he removes every stain, every mark, that we are now perfectly purified. The very core of who we are is called our spirit. It's the only eternal part of us, right? That spirit is now purified by Jesus. But when he opens it up, who goes in? The Holy Spirit of God comes in, that was gross, comes in <laughs> and fills his heart. And now the Holy Spirit seals it. That's what the Bible says. Seals this spiritual location permanently that you're a child of God, you now walk in perpetual grace and God himself is dwelling with you in victory and power to live in this world. Man, is that cool? And they were like, oh, I didn't, oh my gosh. Gosh, I feel like I gotta get saved all over again. And he was like, well, I don't know. You want to get wet again? They're like, yeah. Oh, and he rebaptizes them. Okay, this is the only indicator of rebaptism in the Bible. It is not a common practice. It's not something that we encourage. Notice all the apostles probably got baptized by John the Baptist too. They never got rebaptized later. And the reason why is they knew the rest of the story. These guys didn't know the rest of the story. So he's like, hey, guys, when you got baptized, you did it for this reason. I think we needed to do it in a celebration and joy of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And they were like, yeah, I think we should too. They got baptized and then he goes, can I pray for you guys? They're like, yeah. He lays his hands on them and wham, the Holy Spirit fills them. You understand what I'm talking about? Like all of a sudden they start speaking in languages they don't even know and they're prophesying about the truth of God and the, the future of God and they're saying all this stuff. They're like, oh my gosh, this is a crazy radical revival and it all hits. And it's interesting because this is where we as a reader are like, well, dude, is mine legit? Like, what the heck? I didn't have that experience. Like, do I need to get baptized by the Holy Spirit? Like, what's going on here? All right, so let's talk about it briefly. This will only make sense if you understand that the word baptism has two major meanings, and they are both used in the Bible, and they don't differentiate between the two. Number one, the word baptism means to dunk underwater. That's the first meaning. Now, literally, that's all it meant. So, for example, I remember that there were times when I needed to do my uh, laundry and I didn't want to wait for the whole cycle and I would wash my clothes in the sink. 
when you shove your clothes under the water, you are baptizing them. That's the word. It means to immerse underwater. That's it. So why do we do baptism by lowering people under the water? It's what the word means. Does that make sense? But the second meaning is identified or connected with. That's a key word. Because when we get baptized in the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it means we're publicly linking to them. We're publicly linking to God. And so you don't get re-baptized because you don't need to be reconnected to God. You are permanently a child of God. So you don't get multiple baptisms. So what happened here is that God wanted to set something up that when people who didn't know the full story, he wanted them connected into the main ministry. So he did an outward sign of not just baptizing them, but filling them with the Holy Spirit. And he did it outwardly so everyone knew it was legit. When we get saved, when you say yes to Jesus, and he opens up that heart and purifies it, the Holy Spirit always automatically goes in. So it's a combo pack today. Back then, it had been separated out because they didn't know the rest. When you get saved, you get the Holy Spirit, okay? So... You don't need a new baptism of the Holy Spirit. You're already identified with. Does that make sense? But we do get multiple fillings of his empowerment, okay? Now, I do want to explain one other thing. Has anybody ever found it weird? And this is why a lot of intellectuals struggle in worship. Has anybody ever struggled with the idea that we say, Holy Spirit rain down when you have him in your heart already? <laughs> like that, for me as an intellectual, I'm like, I don't get it. Where is he coming? I thought he was right here, and all of a sudden he's coming down. I don't get it, right? And if he's going to fall, it's a very short fall. It's probably from here and then maybe like two inches down, okay? I don't understand what we're doing right now. Why are we saying, Holy Spirit, come? He's already here. Okay, so what this has to do with is a concept of God having to explain very complicated subjects to children. So he uses the word fall. He uses words like heaven is up. That is not correct. He's not going to go, you know what, let's be honest, kids. It's really a dimensional travel. I mean, the idea is that the Holy Spirit is infinitely close, but at the same time, he's far away because he's like in a different dimension. Then all of a sudden, when he shifts over, like you know that you have multiple dimensions, we have even more dimensions. There is a supernatural reality happening right now, like in the sphere, but not totally in the sphere. And then it crosses over. So when the Holy Spirit comes down, ultimately it means he's shifting into a different mode. Why the heck would you say that? Nobody even understands what I just said. So he dumbs it down and he goes, hey, kiddos? You're like, yeah. Do you want more of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. All right, cool. Well, he's already in you. So what we're going to do is, I guess you probably want some heaven stuff. Yeah. Well, where's heaven? It's up there. <laughs> well, it's not really up there. You mean it's out there? Is that what you, okay, no, it's a dimensional. All right, whatever. Anyway, it's up there. So watch what happens when Jesus gets baptized. Where does the Holy Spirit come from? the clouds. He's like, oh, here I come. I'm a bird. Look at me. And he comes down like a dove, right? 
Because what was the point? He was trying to tell people things and he was dumbing it down for us. And the Holy Spirit lit upon Jesus and he became empowered in the spirit and went out and started his ministry. Is that not true? Okay, so that's why it says, and the spirit came upon them because it meant if heaven is out there, we gotta get heaven stuff and bring it here. So he comes down in that sense, right? It's just a complicated way of simplifying it, yeah? So when we pray, that's what we're praying for. Fillings are when the Holy Spirit lights upon us in a new, fresh way for empowerment. And we get that multiple times. If you need more, you ask him for it. So that's what we're gonna do at the end of this service. For any that need an extra refreshment of empowerment from the Holy Spirit, we're gonna have you stand, we're gonna pray for you, right? But let's go ahead and, and finish where we're at. It says, verse eight, and Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them, took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Okay, a couple things, and we'll wrap it up. One, it says Paul taught them about the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? It's any time where stuff happens on earth as it's already happening in heaven. You see, before Jesus came, Satan had kind of a monopoly on authority around here. And Jesus said, you know, I've always been the king, right? But I think I'm going to move into your neighborhood today. And Jesus came in and started wrecking havoc. He came in and started pushing the enemy back. He started empowering his children to go cause more havoc. And everywhere he would go, listen, Satan, while you bind people, I will set them free. When you disease them, I will make them healthy. I will come in and be the king that they've always longed for that you have never been. So I'm gonna come in and we are gonna push you back. That is the kingdom of God. That's incredible. So we taught them about that. It says, but then all of a sudden everything went toxic. The people were just like, you know what? I'm sick of this whole Christianity thing. Uh, we don't wanna hear from you anymore. And he's like, listen, dude, I don't need to beg you to be saved. I'm here presenting opportunities for you. You know what, I'm out, that's fine. You don't want this, I'm moving on. He goes over and rents a place at the hall of Tyrannus. So, so who is Tyrannus, right? Do we know anything about him? We only historically know two things about him. Number one, his last name is Rex. And number two, he has very short arms. Made him very hard to hold the Bible. We do know that, but that is, that is not true. That is, that is a lie, okay. We don't know anything about this guy, we don't even care. But here's what's interesting. He was in this hall, according to tradition, he would teach every day from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m., uh, excuse me, 4 p.m. He taught for five hours a day. First of all, you thought this sermon was long. Five hours a day, he would go in there and teach. And here's the other interesting thing, he would start at 11 because they were on the siesta system. So what happens is during the cool of the day, they would get all their work done. He would do his leather working. The whole society would do their work. Around 11, they would begin to shut down. They would nap around 1 p.m. The common quote of the ancient world was more people are asleep at 1 p.m. than 1 a.m. 
because they would nap to stay up longer, right? So when they all shut down, it opened up a hall. Paul took advantage of that, rented it cheap, and began to do ministry in the hall. And he did that for years. It's a very, very brilliant strategy. It says, what is the result? All of Asia, Jew and Greek, heard the word of God. Uh, That's kind of a big place. What do you mean all of Asia? He didn't say all heard. He said all who wanted to hear heard. What's the point? Guys, it's not our job to save the world. It's our job to help the people that really want to hear about Jesus. Right? So let me finish with this thought. One of the, let me give you a sneak peek about next week. One of the reasons Paul was so successful in the area of Ephesus is that the Holy Spirit was rolling hard. When we talk about power, you ain't never seen power like this. Next week, we read the end of this story and pick up the next one, and it says this, and the Holy Spirit anointed Paul's handkerchiefs and his work aprons so people would take his sweaty stuff and it would heal people and cast out demons, and he wasn't even there. If your laundry casts out demons, you're hardcore. Yeah? You're going to find out it creates this massive revival in the city. It's hard to ignore when the power of God is moving like that. Here's all I'm telling you. You guys, there's more. More than you ever imagined. So what we're going to do as we close out is we're going to pray. And during that prayer, I'm going to say if you need a fresh anointing. Now, once again, this is not a, if you're a Christian, stand up. This is literally if you feel like God has an assignment for you and you need more for it. Because here's the truth. We have more than enough right now. We're always like, God, give me more, give me more, give me more. And he's like, for what? You're not even doing anything. Why, are we, why am I giving you more? I've already given you power and authority and identity. I've given you the ability to walk out as a victor. You don't need more, kiddo. You need to use what I already gave you. But if you are right now in a difficult season or you're in a season where you're like, you know what, I think I have opportunity to minister to people or man, I gotta go into some prayer times and you need a fresh empowerment from the Holy Spirit, that's the only reason you would stand. Just make sure you're gonna use it. Yeah? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We are so thankful, God, that we have an opportunity to be together. Lord, we have this beautiful day. We have your word in front of us. We spent time worshiping you as the great God that you are. So right now, we want to take a moment to recognize that you're the boss of us. You run this church. You run our lives. You run our families. So we want to honor you and praise you right now. If there's any glory that rises, may rise right now, that we acknowledge you as our king. And Jesus, some of us, we need more for this week. Holy Spirit, we need more of you, your presence, your comfort, your peace, your power. If you need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, would you just stand up? Once again, you don't have to. It's only if you feel the need that there's something going on, you would like to have more of the Holy Spirit right now. Okay, we're gonna pray. Let's do this. Holy Spirit, 
in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we come to you and say, would you anoint us afresh? We have stood here because we need more from you. That God, that we feel like we have used up what you gave us last time. We feel a little bit lacking and, and, and there's just something about your power, something about your presence that is so glorious and beautiful and wonderful. So we're asking right now, Holy Spirit, would you anoint the top of our head? that it would flow down like oil, that everything that we do, everything about our lives and our decisions is made under your authority? Would you anoint our heads? Would you anoint our brains that we might think your thoughts, want what you want? Would you anoint our eyes in the name of Jesus? that we might be able to see in the spirit, that we might be able to see the needs of the people, that we might be able to see strategies and solutions. Would you anoint our ears to be ever attuned to heaven? Would you anoint us right now in our ears that we might be able to hear the cries of the wounded? Would you anoint our shoulders that, Lord, the mantle that we carry would not be heavy, but it would be mighty? Would you allow us to only carry the responsibility you asked us to carry and no more? Would you anoint our hands to heal? Would you anoint our hands to set people free? Would you anoint our hands to bless? Would you anoint our hands with favor? Would you anoint our feet that we would walk into divine appointment continually? This entire week, everywhere we walk, we look for divine appointment. We look for divine appointment. Would you anoint those feet? God, that all your saints that are standing right here have just said, God, I think I need more. You said in your word, God, that we could ask and that you would give generously. Holy Spirit, would you fall upon all of us afresh in the name of Jesus. You may be seated. God, all of us have come to not hear a man, not sing a song. We have come to connect with our God and worship you. Every one of us has come hoping that there would be something for us, that there would be some treat, there would be some connection, there would be something powerful, there would be something soothing, there would be something about your presence that changes us. God, I just pray right now that you would touch each and every heart that can hear my voice, each and every heart that watches online, each and every heart that listens on the radio, each and every heart that is present in this room, that in the name of Jesus, we proclaim healing upon this house, healing upon bodies, pain be gone in the name of Jesus, mental illness be healed in the name of Jesus. Hearts be mended in the name of Jesus. Hope rise. Peace descend in the name of Jesus. We pray, God, that you would provide for our needs in a daily bread kind of way. We pray against fear in the name of Jesus. We bind the enemy of any assignments that he has against anyone in this house. We say, Lord, would you show us what it means to be free and full? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.